Welcome to season two of the Shopstool podcast, a podcast for woodworkers and the maker community in general. With Joey Chalk from King Post Timberworks, Brian Cush from Sawdust Bureau, and Robin Lewis from Robin Lewis Makes. Hi everyone, I hope you're all very well. This is episode 12, season two of the Shopstool podcast. As always, I want to start by introducing my two co-hosts. Joey, how are you? Very good, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. And Brian, how's it going? I'm doing great, guys. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. And my name is Robin Lewis. Welcome to the show, everyone. Now, today we're also joined by a very special guest, and it, it's one that I'm, it, one of our guests that I know, at least I am certainly going to learn a lot from. He's an architect and furniture designer from Melbourne, but he spent a lot of time studying all over the world. He's won a number of awards for his work, so you know he's legit, and he has a strong belief in the design process, which is something we're going to get into a little bit later on. So welcome to the show, Adam Markowitz. Thanks very much for being here today. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 always, it's, it's always cool to have people with sort of that high-end level on the show because we, we, we sort of reach out to such a diverse range of people and we've had um, guests from you know all, all sort of walks of woodworking from the content creator side to as, as I say like you with that real high-end uh, design it's really it's an interesting flair um, on the show an interesting side uh, for the show so I guess a good place to start um, Adam Markowitz where did he come from what's the story how did you get to where you are today all right so um I I actually did a little bit of woodworking when I was a kid. There was a, a program called uh, Learning by Doing um, where you were just, I think I would have been nine or ten, and you go in and you make little um, bits of wood. And there's this, there's this great photo that's on my, um, I think it's on my mum's uh, desk at home, and it's just me in a workshop. And, you know, I never, I don't think she would have guessed that in, you know, 20 years time, I'd be doing pretty much the same thing. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, look, I, um, didn't expect to be doing woodworking. I, I signed up to become an architect similar to Brian. Um, and we actually went through mm. the same course and we, we actually crossed paths with the same right. mentor, um, who was the, um, mm. teacher Hamish Hill. Um, and that was in the master's program um, at the University of Melbourne. I was, we were, it's sort of an elective that you do in the architecture school um, where you build a piece of furniture. Um, and I, you know, just really, really enjoyed that. Um, but it still at the time didn't cross my mind that I was going to be a fine woodworker. Or I sort of expected I was going to be on the straight and narrow to uh, being an architect. Um, so mm. I graduated, got a job, um, and just hated it. I just really, really hated it. <laughs> as, as, as an yeah. architect. So um, a job as an architect. Right? Yeah. And it, you know, it was a range of things. Um, you know, it wasn't up to anything in particular or the practice I was at, um, or the particular work I was doing. It was mainly just, um, being in an office environment didn't agree with me. Um, you know, uh, just counting down the time, you know, the, the whole concept of hump day, 
um, you know, <laughs> where you're just yeah. waiting for the week to Monday go past blues. and just, you know, the questions yeah. are like, oh, what have you got for lunch today? You know, it just <laughs> couldn't take it. Um, what yeah. would you do on the weekend? The, the kind of conversation where, like, neither party is interested in the conversation, but it just happens. Um, <laughs> that, that office banter. Yeah, no, yeah, I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't hack it. Um, and I was doing evening classes in woodworking just as a sort of hobby thing um, in the evenings. Actually, where, work- where were you doing those, Adam? I was actually doing it just just over there at, in oh, you, at, at the Woodworkers Association. You've come a long way. Yeah, yeah. I was um, <laughs> taking classes here, and the teacher there um, had trained in um, Hobart in Tasmania, um, and it was sort of it was really clear to me as I was working as an architect, and you know, it's as I've heard Brian sort of go through um, with his history. It, it can be a real shit bite the architecture. Um, it, it can be really challenging. Um, you know, you've got you, you come up with a design, and there's sort of a million different parties that want to pull it in in different ways. You've got developers and um, clients and engineers and town planners, and they all, you know, pull it this way and that. And it's not uncommon that at the end you've got this sort of Frankenstein of a building that you don't really love, and you know, and. And that design, is that, are you talking from the perspective of you've just come up with this design or it's, it's from a client's brief? Uh, from a brief and you're working with a team. So it's not, what, you know, especially where I was, you know, I was at the bottom of the firm. So, you know, it's sort of, I wasn't, it wasn't specifically my design, but you could just see, you know, the architectural process was, it's minimum two to three years from start to finish, you know, and you know, it's not common for people to stay in a job for that long. So you really don't see things to uh, completion very often. Um, and, and it would just contrast really strongly with what I was doing in the evenings, which is I'd have an idea and I could actually come up with it and make it into reality with my own two hands. Um, mm. And I just found it so much more satisfying. Um, so... After talking to that teacher at, at the Woodworkers Association, where I'm currently leasing um, these days, um, I just packed my bag and I went, packed my car, and there's a, a ferry here that leaves from Port Melbourne and it goes to um, Tasmania. So I caught the spirit of Tasmania across with sort of no real plan, um, but I'd enrolled in a graduate diploma of furniture design at um, the University of Tassie uh, down in Hobart, um, which is a gr- so that would be a plan, I guess. Yeah, it's a plan. <laughs> I, 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 a subliminal plan. Yeah, no. Look, I knew I knew that I was going to go do furniture design. I didn't have a place to stay. I booked into a, um, right. a backpackers for about three weeks until I found a place, and it was just like it just all happened in a hurry. Um, and then suddenly, I found mm. myself sleeping on an inflated mattress in freezing cold Hobart um, and <laughs> lap of luxury yeah, and just Living having the time the of my life it was fantastic because um, <laughs> the, the thing with uh, Hobart is that you know there's a real um, taste for um, craft down there there's a real appreciation mm. of the fine timbers and their their industry like you still go down to the the markets and look a lot of it's pretty kind of daggy little gifts but it's still you know you got the cheese knives and the little bantle boxes and things but it's still 
mm. front and center woodworking and the idea of mm. hewn pine and the timbers there it's very um integral into the mentality there so yeah i really really had a great time um and i the at the time so it was a postgraduate degree and the university had co-located with the polytechnic so i was able to enroll at the same time with a whole bunch of um uh, polytechnic classes um so i was sort of getting simultaneous kind of design training and tafe level training which is really handy mm. um and uh through that like uh, i i sort of learned how to do you know tune up planes and cut up towels um to to a limited extent you know i wasn't there for a, a super long time um but what i managed to do was i, I realized that the um architecture school had a relationship with um the design school in copenhagen um so i kind of tried to arrange something under the radar where i could go because i was at the fine art school the furniture school was part of the fine art school and the architecture school in denmark was related to the design school in denmark so i kind of fudged some things on a form and no one really checked um <laughs> and sort of um ended up uh sort of six months later on a plane uh, heading to copenhagen um and i was enrolled in the the design school at the royal academy there um which is really amazing um but the thing that i was I, i kind of had visions of becoming a danish cabinet maker as i was on the plane going over there and showed up and it wasn't the case it was very um design focused and very strict and rigorous design training um but there wasn't much focus on the making um and i was really drawing on what i'd learned in tazi um for the making side mm. um but it did sort of give me a really strict um kind of introduction into furniture design um from the kind of danish point of view um which is great um so i came back broke and decided uh <laughs> i when Brian will tell, know this like when you um graduate as an architect you're still not an architect um you need to pra- practice right. for 2 years um and then you get lots of times your registration and then you're officially an architect so i decided you know i'd studied for sort of 7 years to become an architect well 6 years yeah um i may as well get this registration so I started um right. working for an architect but one of the main selling points of working for that particular architect was that his office was above a cabinet maker um ah. so yeah okay. and he was a small like small re- like really kind of interesting dynamic office did really kind of crazy designs but um he you know he was a small practice so often there wasn't enough work for me to be on full time Um so it was kind of the perfect deal where on the low times when I'd be working say 2 days a week I'd be downstairs um where I'd subletted a corner of the cabinet makers workshop and was making furniture. Um and who who are you making furniture for at that point? Just for myself, just kind of um ah. no one in particular. Not client didn't have clients. Yet. Um I built a table um which I entered into a design competition that um the same one that Brian won 
um, in 2015 or 16 you won, Brian, um, for uh, yeah, Pinch. Yeah, the Vivid yeah. prize. Yeah. Um, so I entered the table. That, that's where you built the Fred table? Yeah, in 2014. Right, okay. Um, okay. I won that prize. Um, but so you built that before you'd had a single furniture client? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, wow. Uh, but the thing is that if you look closely at the table that won, it wasn't great. Um, and it took me six months to work out how to build that one table, working evenings. And it was just what I realized was that I'd trained, been trained how to design in Denmark and I knew what it, I wanted it to look like, but I didn't actually have the skills to make it that way. And learning, um, trying, trying to teach myself. Yeah, I was going to say that's a really interesting uh, point that I actually wanted to bring up, um, and because you and Brian both so heavily um, design focused, which is great. Now, there's something that happens here a lot, um, and certainly in the architecture t- side of things, where an architect will specify a detail, and then it's just oh, you builders figure out how to make it. I mean, it happens a lot, and I've I've had it in the furniture realm from designers who who have come to me and said, "We need, you know, two of these chairs. This is the this is the sketch. Make it." And I'm like, "Okay, but have you thought about the details? Like, how and, how yeah, how, how do you actually want this made? Because from my point of view, this is impossible. So you must have some secret sauce you've thought of to make this <laughs> this joint work. And I'd say 99% of the time, they're like, "You're the maker. You figure it out." And so it's interesting that you bring that up. Like, there's a there's this balance between designing and then actually making, and you're mm. you're talking about figuring out that 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 whole problem at the same in the same time. Yeah, and look, I actually think part of my what I'm starting to develop um, as a kind of I guess design approach is that when I look at the you know my heroes of furniture making, um, it's you know, you look at the classic Dane designers. They were all cabinet makers before they became furniture, uh, mm. before they became designers. So they knew yeah. how much timber to leave and how much they could take away. Um, and you know, they kind of knew what they were doing, and you can see it in the design. Um, it, it's mm-hmm. kind of, you know, I don't think they're um, independent designing and making. Like I think there's a, a sort of no. a reciprocal process that happens. So while you're making Absolutely. something, you're actually thinking about the design. And then once you've you know got that fluency in the making, when you're designing, you're actually thinking as you're drawing and sketching, oh, how am I going to make this thing? Um, exactly. So yeah. it's this sort of dynamic, and um, yeah. So part of I mean part of um, my what I'm trying to do is encourage woodworkers to focus on the designing because I do feel that um, you know when you look at the popular furniture design at the moment it's very much not made by people who know how to work wood um, basically Um, Mm. but to just finish the end of uh, my tale um, I'll wrap it up quickly so I had no idea what I was doing um, but I knew how I wanted to look, so I went to. I enrolled in an intensive course in Maine, um, which is uh, the Center for Furniture Craftsmanship, um, which is sort of um, super high-end um, traditional furniture making. Um, they've they've got a year-long course there, and I didn't do the year course. I did a three-month intensive course, 
Um, so I got a sort of um, rapid-fire look at the different um, parts of fine furniture making. Um, right. Came back in 2015, and that's when I sort of set up um, full-time as a maker um, in this space, uh, the Victorian Woodworkers Association, which is a not-for-profit that um, supports uh, young furniture makers, so they offer subsidised spaces. Um, and, yeah, look, I take on a range of um, custom commission work and production work, and I um, outsource, I've experimented with outsourcing some furniture as well. Um, and the... So I think a lot of people have kind of a, um, an idea of my practice from Instagram, but the, the, the reality is that a lot of my income, I'd say probably 25 to 50% of my income is coming from architectural practice. So, um, yeah, All right. so I do um, still practice as an architect and it has made what I do feasible. Um, like I do get, I get contacted by architects on the regular going, how do I quit my job and do what you do? And it's like, <laughs> don't. don't. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I don't, yeah, yeah. I kind of don't want to mislead anyone to, um, mm. you know, it's, it is really hard to make a buck doing what I do and being able to, um, practice as an architect means that I can sort of say no to some jobs that I might otherwise previously would have said yes to. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. So that's sort of my origin story. <laughs> well, I just think it's, um, yeah, it's really important that, um, cause I was thinking when I was looking at, at your work, Adam, and I was like, awesome stuff. You must be selling gazillions of these things to be, earning a living from it but like you say like you're not it's not bringing in no. by itself a living and and I think so many younger people have this ambition and I was one of them that I'm going to be this high-end furniture maker and you know make four or five pieces a year it just doesn't work out that way um, very few people can do that and um, the fact that you are supplementing the the awesomeness of the, the design and the fine work with more boring I guess you would put it in that category architecture work um, for me I I don't have a something like that to fall back on so and I think there's a lot of people in, more in my position where they've got the skills to make things so I make lots of more boring things and every now and then I get a really cool commission come through and so it's the, the more boring bread and butter stuff that you pump out boxes with doors on them and you know the cabinets and stuff like that and that's what keeps keeps me going but then I, I still get the chance to do that the odd you know really fine piece that someone's willing to pay for um, mm. I don't think mm. anyone's just doing the fine work fine stuff all day long no and look no. you know there's probably like five guys in Australia that you know you could point out that are doing ultra fine yeah. commission based practice work um, and you know the rest of the people when you look at them that they have another source of income um, I think that there's a real value to doing what you're doing um, because it sort of even though what you described building boxes is um, yeah. boring like it keeps up the fluency um, 
And yeah. the, the frustration mm-hmm. that I have um, often, you know, if I've been, got like a deadline and I'm smashing out drawings for, you know, a month or so and then I get back into um, the workshop, I'll make mistakes that I would never have made a month mm. before. You're just like, I can't believe I just did that. Um, yeah. And I, I think when you, you've got that yeah, regular fluency, you don't, you don't make those mistakes. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Keeping point. keeping your eye on it. I mean, Adam and I had done a, a presentation at the, the Wood Dust Festival together, and it was all about how to move from being an emerging maker into a maker. Right. And I think the one thing that we fully agreed on was diversification of income streams. Mm. And for some people, it works better, like you, Joey, to sort of have the kitchens and things like that paying the bills, and for other people, sometimes bar work or just completely yeah. different work can can help. For me, I was I was actually managing the social media channel of an of a online business school that my wife was part of. So they right. saw my social media. They worked out that I was cheaper than a social media firm. So I did that for <laughs> yeah. nearly a year. And I found it so hard to switch between the two and find mm-hmm. that I would then start neglecting my own social media because that was the last thing that I wanted to be on promoting yeah, my business. Right. Yeah. Having spent you know days planning out their feed for the week and videos and making content <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. So I think there's a fine line between, yeah, keeping yourself in the game, but making sure that you're diverse enough that, you know, we're not in the strongest economy at the minute. Like things are tapering a little bit. You're finding people holding on to their money a bit. So if you can diversify into a completely different uh, industry, it really does future-proof you a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So Adam, you've obviously spent a lot of time um, studying. That's been obviously... A, a, a lot of your your time. Do you feel like that has molded where you've gone with your design process, or do you think that you 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 needed to have that? Like, as someone who doesn't and doesn't have any design background, is that type of formal study entirely necessary? Do you think? Um, I mean, no, um, but it does help. Um, you know the. You know, these are, like, I've um, written a few articles in um, Wood Review about how um, I don't think design is something that you're born with or you're not. Like, I really think a lot of woodworkers have this concept that design is this sort of magic thing and it's just this moment of inspiration. Um, But I really think it's a skill that can be honed. Um, Mm. And... What design school does is it gives you a, a tool set in which to tackle problems. Um, you know, it teaches you lateral thinking. Um, you know, you've got to go in every week and show your design to the tutor. It gets absolutely hammered um, <laughs> every week. And it's kind of, it's not just to make you feel shit. It's also to make you, like, <laughs> learn how to stand on your own two feet and go you know what, I disagree, I, I'm actually going to continue with this process. Um, That's awesome. And, you know, it, the other thing it does is, you know, you study history of design, um, you know, you understand who the key players are and the key movements, um, and you get kind of toolkits of how to work as a designer. Um, but, you know, in the same way that you don't need to go to a craft school to learn how to become a fine woodworker. Like, you can teach yourself these things. Mm. Um, it just requires kind of concerted effort and focus. 
Um, yeah. You know? Um, so the reason why I went to craft schools um, was because I'd spent, you know, probably a year of a year mucking around in a workshop making like terrible mistakes not knowing what I was doing and teaching myself um, and I realized that you know a word of advice can save you like weeks of stuffing around um, <laughs> yeah the, the reason the reason I asked that question is a couple a couple weeks ago well a couple episodes ago I should say Brian we were talking about that one of those tables that you did with the dots and you mm-hmm. did the the brass this, this, the, the Bryson days, you did the star map at the time of the moon landing as seen from, and I listened to that story of you telling that, and I just thought, you know, my brain just doesn't, I just don't work that way. And I was, I was talking to my wife the other day saying, that's what I, that's the, the process that I want to go through before I design a piece. Now, obviously, I'm a lot younger in my journey than you guys are, but how do I get from I'm just functionally building this Scandi style table because I know that it works to now I'm going to use that, that design, those design juices without Adam, like you have gone through all of those, you know, all of those, that formal training. Is that still possible? I think now, I think now you're thinking about it, like you're challenging yourself. So that's probably mm. the first step in the journey is realizing that that you know that there are other levels to things and that you can build story into pieces. That's I, that's definitely something that I would have got through architecture school. I'm not sure if you're the same, Adam, but it's about trying not to post-rationalize your work. It's about having the story drive the design of the piece. Mm. Ah, that's a good way to look at it. Um, I like that. Yeah, and it's it, it's sort of. Like, I often don't come from a, a narrative um, in starting point um, when I'm approaching a piece. Um, and it, it's sort of about just trying different techniques. So, you know, the, the reality is that in the initial stages of everyone's design career, our work is super derivative of other designs. Like, if you look at my earlier designs, um, especially the piece that came out of um, Hamish's class, it was just a classic Hamish piece. Um, <laughs> you know, like, you, you just got mentors and, you know, you, you sort of... Um, even now, I still try different things out. Like, I've recently made a piece with a bit of live edge and I've never done that before and always not had a thing for live edge, but I ended up with a live edge piece. Um, mm. So... You know, it, you sort of try things and you learn what you like and what you don't like and you sort of, over time, develop your own design language. Um, and, you know, it's really nice that when you look at a piece and when I look at one of Brian's pieces, I can tell it's by Brian, you know. Mm. It's got a, a bit of Brian in it and um, other people have described my work similarly. Um, yeah. And I think kind of the older you get, the more... Um, discrete that design language becomes but I think it's just something you develop over time with you talking about yeah. that and you saying Hamish in your work so for anybody that doesn't know Adam I've name dropped it before but Adam is now um, the teacher at the Melbourne School of Design the X lab there so it's kind of the modernized version of the course that we did um, as part of our right. master oh, right. of architecture I think if you if you go on, uh, I think it's x e x underscore lab. Is that the right Instagram? Handle? I should probably know this. Yes, <laughs> uh, you should. 
Uh, I'm pretty um, sure that's it. But if you go on and check out the work, I think it's a really good reflection of the way you teach that I don't see too much direct Adam Markowitz in the work that your students produce. Yeah. Yeah, look, I can I, see that you've ta- you've you've taught them and you've challenged them, but I don't necessarily. I think you maybe drive them away from just direct <laughs> replication, which is a great thing to do as a teacher because that that's that's the hard way. Yeah, I guess what we're trying to teach them, and look, the, the reality with X Lab is that it's a course for the Master of Architecture students, so they've had five years of design training already. So in a way, they're already trained designers. They've just never made anything before. Um, And if you talk to most architects, they're very frustrated makers. Um, So, you know, you put a drill in their hand and show them how to use it, and they just have the best time. Um, So it's more just giving them guidance. Um, The subject itself is a... the, The kind of guiding force behind it is that it's process-driven design. So we want people to um, experiment with weird and um, novel processes, just make weird shit, and then look at the kind of piles of goop or concrete or whatever they've been playing with and go, all right, well, what can we do with this? Can we make something functional with this? Um, So I think that's why it's, you know, there's not a a linear kind of sense in the same way that Hamish's um, class, which is very much design a whole piece. Um, right. That was the brief for the for Hamish's class. Because one of the one of the, the the questions that we were talking about before the show was, where does that design process stop and where does it start? So, in terms of a simple example, I'm making a table and I want to join some legs. You've talked that you are very heavy into design, so it's all about trying new things, pushing those boundaries. But at some point. Like you want to join a leg to a to a rail, it's it's a pretty standard thing. Do you find yourself on each one of those steps trying to create something new, or do you just quote unquote give yourself a break from time to time and just pull out the domino and off you go? Uh, I mean, I've got a domino and I'm not afraid to use it. There's um, <laughs> <laughs> um, a show title. <laughs> really, what the, the important thing with the design is that you've got a conceptual approach from the get-go that is defines you know how you're going to uh, tackle this table, but that same conceptual approach should also be bearing on how you resolve a particular joint. Um, so. You know, if you're looking at a table leg and you're doing a minimal Danish table, well, you know, there's a certain reasoning behind how you would do it, you know. Um, the, the reality is that if you look at most da- Danish furniture, they would absolutely use the domino. Um, oh, you know, yeah. A lot of their stuff is held together with dowels. Most of the chairs are dowel. Um, you know, I, the fact that I... You know, if you look at my Fred table, there's a, an exposed through tenon, uh, mm-hmm. wedged through tenon, um, that I kind of like to run through all of my work. And the thing is that the Danes would never have done that. So, you know, they would have hidden that. They probably still right. would have done, if it was the strongest joint for the, for the, um, uh, and sorry, n- n- some of the Danes would have, but. <laughs> that, you know, as a whole, um, you know, they yeah, would, yeah. it would have simplified the design to not have had that. Um, right. So, um, 
you know, exposing it in that way was, was my own, um, bringing my own uh, approach to that um, particular detail. So, you know, there's a, a good example is this um, uh, live edge piece, which is a wall unit um, that I've just finished. And I really, really wanted to have a draw um, in it, um, dovetail draw, just because I haven't cut a dovetail draw since I was in Maine which is yeah. five years ago. Um, I just haven't had a need, you know, I love cutting dovetails, like they're great fun, but I've just never in my work had a situation where I've um, wanted to put one in. Um, mm. And I designed this piece pretty much around me wanting to do some dovetails. Right. <laughs> um, and as I was working through it, I kind of tried and, you know, it started with sketching and then I jumped onto Rhino, which is the um, software I use. Um, and I was drawing away and I did this iteration that had no drawers and it just looked so much better. Just, <laughs> just shells. Um, and so I made it that way. I couldn't bring myself to actually go back to the draw thing, even though I, that was kind of the goal of that particular piece. It just looked better with just shelves. Um, That's interesting. So, you know, it's, you really, the key thing is having, you know, design is not the, the big idea. Design is still resolving all the little details. It's just making sure that when you're resolving those little details, each of the little bits, like even when you're deciding, you know, what the dimension of the round over is on a particular part, that needs to talk to all the other parts and all the other decisions yeah. you've made. So it's, it's, it's sort of a cohesive approach. Not just a last um, minute sort of, let me just quickly put a round over on because that's what everyone does kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's, a, it's kind of the error that a lot of people do is that they'll, you know, they put a round over on a lot of pieces so they'll just chuck it on this one, but maybe it's not the most appropriate solution mm. or, you know, maybe a lesser rounder or a chamfer or no roundover, you know, you just, there's got to be an assertiveness behind each of the decisions you've made. This is probably mm. a question for Brian as well as Adam, but listening to you talking about design, I'm interested in whether you're just constantly looking forward or are you looking back at what has happened um, before and taking inspiration and then bringing it forward um i guess i'm asking because i mean i always feel my design um flair or my interest is in older things i really love uh, what the french were doing in the 18th century and how the heck they were doing it and i can't like it's so difficult what they were doing with the tools they had and for me i almost feel like a constant feel of imposter syndrome like calling myself a furniture maker and I don't know how to do this stuff and um, <laughs> and so a lot of my designs I'm like trying to go back and like incorporate aspects of what used to be done just to figure out how the hell they did it and incorporate it into their work and I'm wondering if, if, you, if there's any thought process like that or you guys just don't look back let's go forward with what the modern shapes and, and designs mm. uh, for me I would say I'd like to think that I'm always looking forward, but there's definitely parts of my education which look backwards. So mm. um, I studied in Glasgow, which is 
parts of it were, you know, post-war reconstruction. It's pretty heavy, concrete, brutalist buildings, which are all very cold and mostly falling apart because they were so poorly built. But I was always interested in the form of them. So there's right. definitely brutalist um, work which has influenced my work. But I think the fortunate thing about timber is it's obviously easy to soften those forms. And, mm, yeah. you know, it might be... Um, I don't know. It might be an overarching theme in my furniture, but it's softer through textures, through turning solids into slats and things like that. It's very easy to take that and, and make it not more acceptable, but just more... Um, I don't know. Every time you see a brutalist building that's listed, um, heritage listed, like the uproar <laughs> yeah. of people is, uh, is pretty <laughs> huge. We've got a beautiful one just down the road in Footscray, part of an old hospital. And I mean, there are people campaigning outside of the bulldozer, and then there's people campaigning to go, nah, it's the best best piece of work that's left <laughs> in Australia. So I don't know. I, I just find that, you know, if you take that design thinking and apply it to something like furniture or sculpture, it's not as big and it's not as gray, so therefore it's easier for people to accept. And mm -hmm. it's not quite as permanent, you know, you can move a piece around, it's not fixed mm -hmm. to that spot for the next hundred years. Mm. So I guess you're kind of using those old world techniques that Joey was talking about, but because you're using a different material in this instance, it's got a similar feel, but it's also got a very different feel, potentially yeah. modern feel. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you who I think is really good at um, looking back at the past and moving into the future is um, Bern Chandley. Mm. Um, so, you know, he's... Like, he knows how to make a traditional Windsor chair. You know, he's gone and learned how to do it, and I think that's where there is a real value. You know, he wouldn't be able to do what he's doing unless he knew how to make those traditional chairs. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, those traditional chairs, especially with the kind of ornate turnings and, you know, all the little details on it, they're beautiful, but, you know, I don't know if I'd want one in my house. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, you know, they just... You know, they can feel a little bit stuffy, um, some of them. So, I mean, you know, they're beautiful objects. Um, but you look at then what Burns doing, and he's kind of looking at the past, but he's also got a kind of modernist aesthetic which he's bringing to it, and he's sort of taking it somewhere new. Um, and he's experimenting with materials and playing with sort of like brass stretches and different details and stripping mm. it back and you know he doesn't have the um ornate little turnings it's all quite um sleek and streamlined and you know i'd love to have a burn channel yeah. rocker in my house one day you know so i think that's a, a good example of how you can both look at historical references and you know not just be a historical reenactment mm. that's asagai light adam yep as as a South African, obviously I was I immediately picked up on that. Yeah. Where did where did the design idea for that come from? Um, so my, it's funny. My, both my parents are South African. Um, right. Okay. So uh, I, I picked your accent straight away. Um, uh, most Aussies have got no idea how to pronounce that. <laughs> so they'll call me oh, up on the what, phone what did they say? and they go, uh, "I just inquiring about the Asegi." <laughs> um, but look it actually um, the inspiration for that actually came from I think I was somewhere in Europe a long time ago looking at um, 
I think I was in well, Spain somewhere and I was looking at these sort of um, very early muskets um, oh. and the the way the, the timber is sculpted, it's just so, you know, I really like playing with curvature in my work and I, I really like it when, you know, if people describe my work as like bone-like, I feel like I've done a good job. Um, cool. All right. So, you know, you just look at it and it's just so um, organic and sumptuous and it just is designed to um, fit in the human body um, uh, and you know if you need to put out of your mind for a second that these things are designed for putting holes in people um, so, but they're beautiful objects um, so that was the starting point of that particular design just the relationship between um, steel and wood and how it came together and the organic shapes and I made the thing, and yeah, my mom said, you know, that looks like an guy. And I'm like, that's a good name. <laughs> so, and then no one could pronounce it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just such a, such a striking piece because it's just, especially from our level, it's just a slit. It's such, such a cool design. I really like that. Yeah, it's, the, the hard thing about it is that it's really hard to photograph. Um, right because it just sort of disappears. And I've had it in a few, you know, it, it's probably at this point my best-selling product. Um, and, you know, it does go in architectural spaces and they shoot it and you can't see it. It just disappears. <laughs> um, and it, it's, what's really nice about it is that it, it's got this double taper and I've built this sort of tapering router jig that allows me to create the shape where it's sort of tapering on two axes, two axes. Um, and you only really experience it in person. You can't. It's really hard to photograph. Um, mm. I was going to say, does it have a different, completely different feel, obviously, in person then? I mean, you don't obviously... Does it disappear to your eye as well, depending where you are in the room? Or um, I hope not. Um, people, <laughs> people definitely respond to it better in person than they do yeah. in, in photographs, definitely. You can see it in... Uh, what was the movie, Adam? <laughs> um, uh, uh, like reload or um, uh, I'll, I'll have to do that. <laughs> I can't remember either. Uh, <laughs> there was a there was a sci-fi movie that was shot in Melbourne, and uh, they sourced a lot of locally made stuff. Okay. Um, oh, that's really bad. I can't remember the name of it either. So but, yeah, it was it was a, actually it was actually sourced to be on the show. It wasn't just per chance that it was there. No, no, no. They they sourced some of my stuff, some of Adams. Uh, I was going to say, yeah. Wow. Wasn't your pitch bench in the in, yeah. the, in a movie? Is it very, the same very, one? Very, very briefly in a fight scene. Upgrade. That's the one. Upgrade. Was it the same movie though? Same yeah. movie. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mine was in the bad guys' lair, and Adams was in the good guys' lair. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, it looks beautiful in there. So Adam, if people want to see more of your stuff. Where, where do they go? Obviously, you've got Instagram and, and a website. How can people find you? Yeah, that would be the best. Um, probably Instagram is what um, updates a lot. And I'm, I'm big on stories because um, I can put stupid things up and they go away. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I keep the stories updated pretty well. I don't really post all that often. Um, mm. Uh, yeah, and I, I look, I haven't updated my, my website in years, but um, that's, that's, there's a good, um, that's I think where most of my customers find me, I'd say. Okay, right. so your 
Instagram, I'm just pulling it up here so I can get it right, is Markowitz Designs. That's M-A-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z Design. So check that out. And then obviously your the website's Markowitz Design as well. Isn't it? Yeah, dot com, no AU. So go check out Adam. Um, because yeah, the some of the stuff that that's I saw on Instagram that one of those it's that lamp, it's, it's probably one of the, the newer posts. Was that a design of yours as well? Uh, this it's like a C shape. Yeah, yeah so capital that, C that one. Yeah, that one was uh, steam bent. Um, so mm. I I actually um, used a jig that um, Burn had posted on his um, uh. Instagram, a, a sort of steam bending jig. Uh, so it was steam bent, um, air dried spotted gum. And then I put it on the table saw and cove cut it, um, uh. which was. Ah, yeah. Super gnarly. Um, it's pretty hit? hairy. Yeah. yeah. Um, curve cuttings where you kind of go diagonally to the blade to cut the um, profile. Um, and then sort of hand carve the outside. So it's got this sort of, if you cut through it, it would have a, a kind of crescent profile. Um, mm-hmm. And what's cool about it is that it's probably only about three mil thick, um, wow. but it's super rigid. Um, but the problem with it was that the whole conceptual idea was that when you steam bend stuff, it springs back. Um, right. And then it was going to have a vertical cable that held the globe. Um, and then as the steam bent timber sprung back, it was going to hold the cable in tension. Um, right. So you'd be able to sort of pluck it like a guitar string. Um, <laughs> oh, right. And that was working That's really awesome. well um, until I cove cut it. And then it, it was springing back, and as soon as I cove cut it, it started closing in. Uh, um, so I think somehow by removing the material on the backside, I changed the strip. Took the, a bit of tension out. Yeah, and yeah, it actually and closed down. Um, so the, the cord's actually really floppy. <laughs> um, Turned into a bass guitar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just need to put a really thin tube in there and run the cable inside the, like a steel tube. And yeah, the thought crossed my mind. Either way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Robin, the other project of his that you should really check out is the Mobius chair. That's the one you did in mm. Copenhagen, right, Adam? Yep. Yeah, because Robin's been doing Why does that name sound a... so familiar? It, you might have seen look, it's, it's been... Well, firstly, if you Google it, it's um, uh, Metron's chair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Metron, the uh, comic book character. So oh, right. <laughs> right. That's the first thing that came up. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's done the rounds on social media, um, it's mm, been re- that's reposted a million times. Um, I get I get inquiries on to uh, sort of for, to get them made from all around the world, um, but it's so labour intensive that when I quote them a price, I've never had someone come back and go, "Yep, I'm going to get one of those." Do you have the <laughs> molds for it still? No. Um, oh wow. Uh, and to be honest, the way I did it in Copenhagen, like. I had very limited facilities there, so it's not the best way. Um, right. And I've had a, cra- a crack at a number of different ways to try and make it, um, and I still haven't nailed down a quick, efficient, <laughs> um, yeah, good way Nothing to make it. Nothing about it looks quick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a f- I'd love to set it. Look, it would take me probably two months to, to yeah. nut it out, I think, and I just don't have that sort of time to contribute yeah. to it. Mm. Um, but I'd love to have the space to actually spend a bit of time to resolve it properly. 
Yeah. Where's the, where's cool. the original one? <laughs> it's um, sitting in a corner <laughs> at my mum's place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's classic when you think of um, these sort of uh, fine design blogs posting photos of it, and I know where it's actually sitting. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't it? It was in Vogue, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some, oh, wow. some, um, a really good photographer borrowed it for a photo shoot, so there's photos of like models draped all over it. <laughs> it's pretty funny. That's amazing. That's amazing. All right, so everyone listening, yeah, go and check out Adam's work. Clearly, as we've all just heard, there's some pretty, pretty high profile stuff there, even if it is sitting in mum's room somewhere. <laughs> the dirty secrets. Don't, don't, have, yeah, my advice to everyone is don't believe the Instagram smoke screen. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so to everyone listening, I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, if you did, please go ahead and give it a rating on iTunes. That really does help us out. The Shop Store podcast is available on iTunes and most other podcast apps as well as YouTube. So, Adam, thanks very much for coming on the show. We really did appreciate you hearing, appreciate hearing your story. Thanks very much for sharing it. My name is Robin Lewis. Joey and Brian, thanks for hanging out today. Take care, everyone, and we will see you in the next one. See ya. See you later. Thanks for having me.